Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, but just graduated, Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hi, hi. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Aaron. I'm, I'm getting used to not saying good evening because some people, I guess our show sometimes airs in the morning. So good morning yeah. to those in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and good evening to those in the evening. Uh, the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we are honored to have as our guest again, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. Dr. Hayes is Nevada Foundation Professor in the Behavior Analysis Program at the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada and author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles. His career is focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering. He is the developer of relational frame theory and account of human higher cognition and has guided his extension to Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act a popular evidence-based form of psychotherapy that uses mindfulness, acceptance, and values-based methods. He's released popular self-help books such as Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, and in 2019, A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters. Dr. Hayes, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Awesome to be here with you and looking forward to the conversation. I thought that in this episode, we're going to focus more on application, uh, a, a practice-oriented type of questions. You know, and one of the first questions I'd like to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot of, uh, and had shows on it actually about the role of insight and insight-oriented therapies and how there's some studies that show that the number of insights that you have in therapy don't really correlate with change. What is your thoughts about insight-oriented therapies and achieving insights in therapy and things like that? Well, you, you have to define it. And sometimes insight means this kind of cognitive formulation. Oh, it, I see why it came from here and it needs to go there. Sometimes they mean more this emotional and almost transformational experience of really coming to terms with some of your own history and, and having it reveal itself in a way that informs these present moments when you can see how your history is playing out. If, if it matters, it's more in the second than the first, in my opinion. And so these processes of emotional deepening and opening and experiencing uh, your own uh, bodily reactions and emotional reactions that come from your history that show up in your present in times where your, your repertoire is narrowing down or you're being pushed to do the wrong thing or you yet again are doing something that you know in the past hasn't worked, but you just almost feel compelled to do it. Whether it's that new boyfriend who has every sign, it's, it's just like the last one or that you know, uh, uh, getting into uh, uh, cul-de-sacs with your own habits and so forth, uh, you know, will produce problems uh, for you psychologically or physically. So I'm, uh, I do think insight can matter if we define it to be contact with these deeper change processes that we know predict positive trajectories. And so the reason why I think many different traditions say, oh, this is important, this is important, this is important, and then it doesn't show out up correctly in the, in, or in a way that fits with that research-wise is because you have a part of the picture, but it's contextually bound. It's talked about in ways that is overextended or, or too narrow or has other concepts. And you know, with respect, if we can get everybody in the same room and start digging into these processes of change, we have a chance of 
figuring out what's really important inside the things that people care about that my experience is usually there are, there's something in there. There's something in there, but it doesn't show up in our data because we're talking about it, measuring it, partitioning it in ways that don't fit the, the exact moments, that complex situational and historical interaction. We're complex networks. We're not dominoes. And if you don't get that it's double-headed arrows everywhere and they're all interacting at the biophysiological, sociocultural, psychological level, you know, you're never gonna un unpack human complexity in my opinion. So uh, that's one reason why it's important to understand what is inside some of these issues like insight. Now, in our last episode, Steve, you referenced your politics a couple of times in, um, in, as having to do with influencing the way you do your work. So I wanted to ask if you're comfortable answering, what are your politics? And then, you know, beyond that, do you worry about prescribing certain values to your patients? Is that a problem in therapy? Are there certain values that are important to teach patients, in your opinion? Yeah, political just means really social, if you unpack what the, what, what the word is talking about. And, and I'm not much of a you know, a left, right, uh, you know, blue, red type of, of person politically, but I am very interested in human cooperation and how we build community and how we, uh, you know, can create a future for us as a human community. And in that conversation, we know that groups are better at making decisions than individual, that whole group think that you may have in your head that you know, groups, it's really not true. It happens only under extraordinary circumstances. Almost always groups are better than individuals. And we're into a world right now where, where we've sliced and diced and put our, our streams of, of news and all the rest into ways that are creating such deep divisions. So my politics is linked to the kinds of things that Lynn Ostrom was talking about in her core design principles for which she won the Nobel in 2009 of how do we come together in community and really learn to speak and listen with each other to find common values, to find the cooperative space to work together to do that. Now you look at our current politics in the U.S. and you see almost none of that except inside the, you know, the reds and the blues. And, and boy, is that a train wreck? Don't we all know that's a train wreck? So how are we going to walk out of it? I mean, I think we're going to have to walk out of it with a lot of wisdom, a lot of care, a lot of listening and sharing. And it starts with yourself, I think. It starts with your family. And I can say this. Here's one thing that is kind of cool, I think that what we've found in how groups cooperate from things like the Nostrum's uh, core design principles, you see a reflection about what we've learned in processes of change as to how individuals move forward in their lives. I'll give you an example. It, being able to back up from your judgments a little bit, what we call diffusion, and to notice your judgmental predictive evaluative thoughts and be able to, with respect, take a step back and use a broader range of verbal uh, skills, such as observing, describing, and appreciating, not just judging, predicting, and evaluating. Well, when you extend that socially, that means taking the time to really listen to the opinions of others without immediately getting into, I don't agree with that, I, I do agree with this, or that whole, 
But how about connecting in consciousness with another human and really listening, trying to get underneath why they talk that way and what's at stake for them? That's what you're doing clinically when you ask people to back up from their self-judgments, turn their attention towards what's important and get their feet linked to it. That's a very core act idea. One of the things that you um, kind of focus on with ACT, yeah, as you mentioned a little before, is cognitive diffusion. And that that can be a little bit tough to uh, explain. I was wondering, could you, ta- uh, could you give a brief description uh, that, that you know, could help some practitioners and maybe people at home trying to get a hold of this uh, concept? Really what diffusion is, is uh, a way of talking about how we get to cognitive flexibility. We, we all have many, 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 many thoughts in our heads. And if you actually look at the number of thoughts that we could have in our heads, I've done the math on this based on relational framing ideas, which we might get to, you have more possible thoughts in your head than there are you know, molecules in the universe. And wow. that's a mathematical fact. I can walk you through how you can get there. So we have this almost infinite flexibility in our, our thinking. Yeah, but that means we're constantly of two and three and four and five, six different minds about everything. If you say, I'm a great person, you hear a little voice saying, well, not so much. If you say, I'm the worst of the worst, you're saying, oh, you're not that bad. So you're filled with these kinds of contradictions, arguments, encouragement to go this way or that, a cacophony. What diffusion does is allow you to back up a little bit from that voice within, from those, that narrative, that story that you tell about yourself, your future, what you're like, what the current situation is, and notice that you're thinking. That's huge, because if I can notice it, then I have a little gap. Is that useful? Is that helpful? Do I want to do it? You don't have to argue back. I mean, if, if you had um, uh, you know, a trip you're taking and you get the kids are in the backseat arguing, you don't necessarily have to get in and solve their arguments, but you probably do have to find a way to step a little bit out of that chatter or you're going to have a very difficult road trip. And in the same way, teaching people to back up a little bit, notice that you have an analytic judgmental mind, notice that it's trying to help you, notice that it even says it is you, and yet uh, there are multiple voices there, and you can pick and choose when to uh, use a particular thought, and based on your experience with it, whether or not to continue to focus on that thought over time. Steve, I I, uh, I I noticed in some of our patients, and I actually had one today, where when they have schizophrenia, they hear voices. And that's a classic question we ask. And then sometimes when they have anxiety or OCD, that's so bad, they hear thoughts so loudly that they're not able to, we have to say, they'll answer yes to our question of do you hear voices to the point where some of them have actually requested or been on antipsychotics in the past because it feels to them like they're hearing voices and until we say, is it coming from in your head is it, or is it coming from outside your head? Does it feel like it's your voice or does it feel like people, people are actually hearing these voices so much that they're, I mean, it, it's just kind of making the point that you, you know, your, your kids in the car metaphor, you literally have these, these thoughts are, are identifying with us so strongly that they feel like they're us or like they're even distinct people. I'm with Julian Jaynes, you know, in the written record, it's pretty clear that most people experience thoughts very much like that. 
and the oracles of Delphi didn't uh, surprise anybody because everybody was hearing voices. And of course, if you actually ask people in a safe place whether or not they hear voices, it's much, 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 much larger than the CMI, SMI populations that you're thinking about. There's probably your neighbors hearing voices issue. And I, I'm kind of, uh, 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 you know, ACT has been adopted by the Voice Hearers Network and some of those folks who believe that we really should not respond so strongly to something like that because it has to do with how does it play out? And by the way, antipsychotics are really not antipsychotic. You know that the major tranquilizers were a more honest description. And, you know, the early drugs were vetted by anything which would lead you to be able to escape but diminish avoidance. That's how they found those drugs in the animal models back in the day when they're being vetted. And so, uh, you know, can they be helpful? Uh, yes, they can, but higher dose, longer term, you know, you've got all kinds of problems there. Now with the better randomized trials, even in terms of psychotic symptoms long-term, in my opinion, if you look at, you know, it's got accepted as a clinical standard too quickly, in my opinion. And now that we look with more variation, we can see that it can be helpful in certain cases, but you don't want high dose long-term use unless you have to. But I'm back to something that uh, this whole issue of symptoms well, wait, 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 I'm going to jump in there just for a sec because that was really interesting and I want to I want to ask about that and maybe maybe challenge you on sure. that. Um, I know antipsychotics in my practice to be very antipsychotic. If if someone's acutely in the psychiatric hospital and we we give them Zyprexa or we give them Haldol, it seems to work very well. Are you saying that you've seen evidence that that's not the case and that we're deluding ourselves? But it depends what you're doing. Record whether or not and make sure they do it in a way that you can uh, trust it, whether or not you still hear any voices or they're just less dominant, less entangling. You know, right. psychotic symptoms are still there. You're just not reacting as much behaviorally. Yeah, you're not focused less. on it, you're not entangled with it. You know, so if it's antipsychotic and what you mean by psychotic are these particular signs and symptoms, not managing your life in which you have a variety of reactions, including things like hearing a voice, you know, if you define it that way, then I'd say, no, they're not antipsychotics, or at least not powerfully. So, okay. but they do we... help you. And I'm not singing the song saying you shouldn't use this. I'm saying lower dose. Yes, I'd, I'd talk about that. And, and, and shorter term, if we can get to it, use an honest rationale. Don't tell people that you have a brain disease when you don't know that. Huh. You don't know that. I mean, it's not like, you know, we know and same thing with depression, you know, the, where's the evidence that there's unusual levels of dopamine, serotonin, and the rest are not there. So we are, end up lying to people to get them to keep them to keep using it, that you should never do that. I, I think we, I think there's pretty good evidence for schizophrenia being a brain disease, and it's more in the imaging than it is in the monoamine hypothesis of neurotransmitters. Well, let's let's walk it out. You really want the developmental neurobiology to show that to you, and you want to dig into the twin studies and others. You really have to look. I'll give you an example. Uh, okay. What is the probability that you develop psychotic symptoms if you moved from a language community early on uh, from from one language community to another. And it goes up hugely. It's something like a 50% increase. Well, give me the neurobiological explanation of that. Of so course, what are you it's impacting your brain. The... We're, we're impacting our brain right now. And, okay. you know, so I want to know when was the studies done, et cetera. I, I'm not going to 
give you that we know that it's a brain disease. I, I just won't. Is the brain involved? Yeah. So is the brain involved in our conversation right now? Of course. People without brains don't talk. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. Go ahead, Alan. So what you mentioned those twin studies, which are which is interesting. Or or you 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 mentioned. Sorry, I'm getting confused here. You mentioned that when someone switches languages, tell tell me about that and what meaning. Well, and I think this is why the animal model thing that I mentioned early on is so important. You know, we know that there's an experiential avoidance piece and also a change in sense of self peace. And when children go to a situation where suddenly they're not understood at all, it's extremely aversive. They can't understand what's going on in the world. And they may, there's other kinds of, uh, you know, life experiences that you can see in the trajectories that in twin studies will lead one twin to be uh, a psychotic one to not. Those are the ones that I'm most interested in. Uh, because if they're identical twins, we kind of know that, that uh, it started the same place, at least in terms of DNA, of course, epigenetics and so forth could be different. So maybe gene expression, no. And when you dig into that, there are, this is a complex network that's evolving over time. And yes, medications can be helpful about it. Yes, the brain's involved. But this kind of simplifying and categorizing that we're so used to, if it was really true what you were saying, we would know that schizophrenia is a disease. And the American yeah. Psychiatric Association doesn't say schizophrenia is a disease. I think schizophrenia is a disease spectrum that's that's I, starting I to be well characterized because it doesn't fit the definition of a disease with a known etiology, mechanistic course, response to treatment, and developmental uh, trajectory. You don't have all the features yet. You know that you have a disorder. That's fair, and and I I appreciate your humility. I mean, I think one of the thing the topics we care about on the podcast is the amount of times that medicine as a field has, you know, arrogantly, confidently said something with full certainty, and then 50 years later, it's wrong. And you know, we we say to ourselves, I don't know who we is, I guess I say to myself, um, but I didn't make this up, that, you know, 50% of medicine at any given time is you just don't know which 50%. And I, I appreciate you kind of- True holding, of all science, I think. And, yeah. yeah. And, and I appreciate you holding yourself and us to that standard. And I think, I don't want to amplify our differences. I think mostly we agree on the nece- necessity of, of, of humility around schizophrenia. I do believe it's a brain disease. I be- what I would say to a patient is very similar to, I think, what you would say, which is I say, hey, this is a brain disease. That's the part you would disagree with. And then I would say- we have these medications. I do think they help. We don't exactly know why they help. We have ideas, but try them out. Well, here's what I would say. Work for you. If I had a cooperative back psychiatrist, of which there's a lot, if you come and hang out with ACBS group, there's about 200 psychiatrists or part of the 10,000 member society. And I'd probably be something like this. In fact, we do not exactly know the mechanisms that lead uh, to the, this problem. But it does appear as though the medication that I'm going to suggest for you kind of gives you a peek over the wall as to how you might respond with some of these symptoms when they show up. It won't completely eliminate them, but you'll have a sense of distance from them. It won't be so overwhelming, et cetera. Now, we also know that long-term and heavy dose use produces problems, even in basic things like shortening your life and cardiac problems and so forth. So it's of interest to us for you to also work on your skills as to how you respond when you have odd perceptual experiences, how you respond when you hear voices and so forth. And so we could do two things at once. 
And so I'm going to I'm going to script this for you, but I actually want you also to be coming to our psychotherapy sessions as we go, and to really learn, you know, as we taper that down, how best for you to be able to deal with something that may be chronic, may last a long time. You know, if you did that honestly, and then you got on the, I mean, I don't want to dishonest sounds like a harsh word, but I mean, don't overstate what we know scientifically. You can get full buy-in. People will, in fact, use the meds in the ways that they should. But you can also be looking at lower dose and tapering and use a rationale that empowers uh, the psychosocial uh, uh, part of it. You know, in the last few years, 60% of those with mental health problems receive only medications, 30% combined, and we're headed right. to 100%. I mean, I think part of this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest we change subjects soon because I really want to get your act yeah, you know, we have you here, and it, it's yes. it's a we don't want to squander. So well, let me just say though that ACT is quite has quite a number of studies in the area of chronically mentally ill and severely mentally ill, and you might not think, boy, how can psychotherapy help with these things? Well, go look at the trials. Wow, you Do preempted they, my point. You know, and here's what happens: people still have symptoms, but they stay out of the hospital. Why? Because they got that little gap, that fingernail grip that keeps them moving forward, focusing on what their, their values are and what they really want to put in their lives. And that will, for example, we've found over a year long follow-up in three studies now have been replicated, a 50% reduction in rehospitalization with uh, about an eight week course of ACT while in the inpatient setting. You know, that's pretty cool. And, and you know, I mean, there's some, Studies that haven't found effects that great in the different ways, but they've all found that there's something important going on with both positive and negative symptoms. If you look at the whole, so look at the meta-analyses, think about it. I will. And then, and then as a psychiatrist, if I'm talking to those folks here in the podcast as I am here in this moment, think about how to work in a team-based way with the psychotherapy part, either you yourself or with your team members and use rationales and your dosage and you, you know, the, the way that you uh, rationalize it uh, in a way that empowers the team and uh, gives us the best chance to get all hands on deck and helping that person. Well said. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and yeah. I think that part of it, it, I mean, my bias as a second year resident is I just spent the last two years working with very, very low functioning, seriously mentally ill people, mentally ill people who some of them spend their life in a hospital Sure. Or in, or in an IMD setting. Um, anyway, but th thank so you for. I started for, there too. I started there. It was at Butler Hospital, which was one of the. Oh, early. me too. Oh, really? Yeah. So were you at Brown? Brown? Yeah. Brown, of course. <laughs> okay. All right. So I was in the first uh, class of Brown interns when the psychology interns was, the ship was set up by Dave Barlow there at Butler. So. All I've right. Multiple times. To it's a fantastic hospital. Amazing so. place, amazing place with long history, as you know, uh, of major, major figures in psychiatry and so on. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear about, uh, or sorry, Aaron. Well, I just, yeah, I just want to go along with, uh, you know, the direction is that this, this, uh, this, that you have the self in context, you have this kind of present focus, and then you're kind of creating this space uh, between you know, these kind of these messages, this cacophony of uh, kind of uh, uh, description and this narr negative narrative of yourself, uh, or or in the psychosis, the kind of these voices, these negative voices. So, uh, or it could be yeah, right? It could be a positive voice, right? It's, they're all there, 
so what would be an act approach to creating that 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 space and that separation and that clear well you can uh, do, you can distill yeah. the psychological flexibility model down to three things being more open more aware and more actively engaged in a values based life and you know if you take something I'll stay with the theme of, of chronically mentally ill and so forth but in a way that we can focus on the act part you know we can easily get into conversations with people who have only been talked about to, to is actually the right word, uh, about their signs and symptoms. You know, constant questions about, uh, you know, uh, hallucinations and delusions and never a conversation about, uh, what do you really want? Do you have any friends? Uh, how would you get friends? Did you, do you know that befriending alone, teaching people how to get friends is now becoming an evidence-based therapy for the chronically mentally ill. And I look at that and look at the protocols and I say, this is almost shameful because it means nobody ever took the time to talk to people as people because they're living inside a category. And I, you know, and I understand why and the healthcare system has a lot of things to do, but can we heal that breach? And so open, aware, and actively engaged. I want to know what do you want your, what's of importance to you in your life? I want you to be open to your history and to the what's showing up in your body and your mind and your emotions. Why? Because it allows your history to inform what's going on here. But I want you to also have the attentional flexibility to move your mind off of yet another focus on, for example, a voice that, you know, you have enough experience to say, if I focus on that voice, I mean, we're talking John Nash, you know, there are people who, who catch, you know, if I do that, I'm going to lose this. And they can learn attentional flexibility, even though they still hear voices of not focusing as much with sometimes voices can actually be helpful, by the way, but in such a way that gets entangling, come into the present moment from this more conscious point of view. So open to your experiences in the history and the present, aware of your awareness and your attentional flexibility, and then focused on your values and what you need to do concretely right now. And concretely right now, you might need to take a bath. You might make a call. You might need to show up to the work uh, 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 assignment that, uh, you know, the, uh, ace, the, the, the folks uh, have gotten in, in your halfway house or in, or in the, uh, helping you to reintegrate in the community. That's not beyond anyone. Well, I'm going to say it this way. Of course, clinically, it can be on anyone at a given moment, but that's of relevance to anyone. And don't sell people short. I mean, Pascal's wager applies also to our guesses about whether or not uh, change is possible, even for the folks who are most chronic or most struggling. Uh, we can do that without Pollyanna. You don't have to uh, you know, be irrational. You just have to keep the faith one step at a time and try to give people the skills they need to show up and move forward in a positive way. Now, I don't know where the horizon is for that person. You know, the person who says, my values are I want to be an astronaut. Well, A, that's not a value. B, it's not going to happen. Uh, and what would a, being an astronaut give you? Well, you know, people would respect me. They'd look up to me. I bet you the people I'm talking to right now want that. Why should that be deprived of people? because they're in a category. How could they produce a life in which people would respect and look up to them? And some of that might even the courage that people show to step up 
and walk out the door when hearing voices? Can you imagine how much courage that sometimes takes? I mean, I think people should have to be given a medal or be made a knight, you know, just the things that normal people do who are struggling with uh, CMI, SMI issues. So uh, anyway, um, I think it's relevant. The data show it's relevant and uh, puts us in a, in a more all hands on deck place where the healthcare system can bring the best from all of our different subdisciplines and knowledge. Uh, Dr. Hayes, uh, we're kind of wrapping up here, and I, I, I want to ask you, you've, you've applied ACT and you've applied your mind to so many different areas, uh, you know, prejudice, uh, you know, weight, weight gain, uh, you know, that kind of thing, weight loss. Sports kind of performance. Sports performance. Sports Olympic uh, medals. We won Olympic medals for that. Oh, I hope you're uh, helping our Olympic athletes. Uh, wait, so, what? Where do you? Where are you focused right now? Where? Where do you see? Is uh, where do you want to apply your energy in the future? Well, I myself am applying it to uh, things like workers in essential industries who are under amazing stress. COVID has sort of shown that. I'm trying to. I am, in fact, working with sports figures. Uh, you know, I. Uh, Toronto Blue Jays is all act all the time and their mental performance. Uh, come on, go Jays. They've got some, a little few more wins to get into the playoffs. But you mentioned the uh, Sixers as well. Yeah, the Sixers. Yeah, sure. Patty uh, Steinfurt, was, uh, he just recently left the Sixers. But it, well, and why would you work with high performers in sports? Because the point is these processes of strength and flexibility are relevant to us all. If you look at the meta-analyses on relationships, for example, with 12,000 people and so forth, they predict whether or not you're going to have powerful and committed relationships. They predict whether or not you can lose weight. It isn't just predict, you can do the experiments. So we get to this place where we say, let's put healthy processes and use the healthcare system when somebody comes to you for change to put a process in that will not just fix that problem but will empower that life when the next thing happens where they have to lose weight or they're dealing with enacted stigma against them because they're sexual orientation or or, or ethnic and racial group and on and on it goes we can give people the skills and that is my mission dig down basic enough to know that these core processes will not just help you with your depression, anxiety, whatever brought you in, but with your diet, exercise, running your business, or being able to relate to your spouse and you go home. And in a, new, in a different way, it's not gonna be one size fits all, but in a way that fits the, the best of bottom-up science. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we had a great discussion with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, uh, developer of ACT, uh, author of 44 books and 600 scientific articles, philosopher. Thank you, Dr. Hayes, for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Had a great time. And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Ismail Gonzalez. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.